Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us on Heritage Events Live. We welcome you to Grim Prospects for Women and Girls in Afghanistan. Please welcome our host, Nicole Robinson, Research Associate on the Middle East for the Allison Center for Foreign Policy. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning, everyone. Um, a few housekeeping notes to get out of the way before we begin. Um, the session is recorded and will be emailed to you and posted on the Heritage website within 48 hours. All attendees are in listen-only mode and you can submit your questions in the chat box. When you do send those questions, please let me know your name and the organization you are affiliated with. First, I wanted to thank the audience for taking the time to listen in today. I'm honored to be joined by such a distinguished lineup of panelists to discuss a very somber but critical subject that has made news headlines over the last few weeks, which is of course the situation in Afghanistan. It's been really heartbreaking watching Afghan families, many who put their lives on the line to help the US desperately trying to flee from Taliban rule. With the evacuations deadline set to expire today, many Americans and Afghans alike fear what life will be like under the Taliban, especially women and girls. The Taliban has an ex extensive track record of abuse of women's rights, and there's nothing to indicate that they have changed since the 1990s. Unfortunately, it is likely that many of the tremendous gains and hard-won freedoms that women and girls enjoyed in the past 20 years will not survive Taliban rule. To walk us through the impact of these recent developments in Afghanistan, we have, and I ask that our panelists uh, turn on their cameras and their microphones as well. We have um, Ambassador Roya Rahmani, who was just named a distinguished fellow at Al my alma mater, Georgetown University, and previously served as Afghanistan's first female ambassador to the United States from December 2018 to July 2021. I'm so happy that you can join us today, Ambassador. Thank you. We are also joined by Hila Najibula, who's on the phone today. Um, she's a conflict and peace researcher and the author of the book, Reconciliation and Social Healing in Afghanistan, which analyzes the Afghan reconciliation process in 1986 and 2010. Thank you, Hila, for joining us today as well. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry, because of technical reasons, I cannot turn my camera on. Glad to be with you. Thank you. And then finally, we have with us today, Lisa Curtis, um, who is a senior fellow and director of the Indo-Pacific Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Um, she served most recently as deputy assistant to the president and the senior director for South and Central Asia at the National Security Council. And she's also a Heritage alum. Um, welcome back, Lisa. Thank you for having me. So today's event will be a conversation in two parts. Uh, first, we will hear from the panelists, and then we're gonna take about 15 uh, minutes to take questions from the audience as well. So uh, again, thank you all for joining us today, um, as well as the panelists. Um, I wanted to direct my first question to Ambassador Rahmani. Um, in your opinion, how have the rights of Afghan women evolved over the years, and how do you think it will be affected by Taliban rule? And then also, in your experiences as ambassador, um, how have you helped to promote the rights of Afghan women? Thank you. The inter international community's biggest and most tangible achievement was the progress that, of women that was achieved over the past 20 years. 
uh, yet the most fragile one uh, at the same time. Uh, women have made massive progress in the past 20 years. This had direct contribution and relationship with the uh, national security agenda, with the counterterrorism strategies, and uh, economic development, social development, change in the mindsets, and much more. Uh, this has been one of the biggest uh, successes that the past 20 years uh, we were able uh, to uh, uh, achieve. Uh, however, uh, at this point, yet again, as I mentioned, that this is the most fragile one at the same time, it seems that the women will be those who will be losing the most. Uh, whether it is because of conflict or uh, the authoritarian um, regime uh, that uh, is oppressive towards women. So, so far, the Taliban have tried to put a, a more moderate uh, PR face uh, stating that uh, they would allow women to enjoy the, the rights and liberties that they have had over the past 20 years with a caveat that it had to be within the Islamic Sharia. Now, that uh, introduction or injection is very loaded because Afghanistan is a Muslim country and women of Afghanistan have been practicing uh, Islamic uh, rules and laws all along. Uh, to inject that, it, it basically also means that they would be subjected to the sort of interpretation that we have seen uh, potentially the kinds of it uh, in the 1990s. And that is a very alarming situation for all Afghan women. I, what I have been able to do in terms of promotion of women's rights uh, over the uh, during my work, uh, I would say that prior to working with the uh, Afghan government, uh, I worked with the nonprofit world uh, where um, my own focus was mostly on uh, building the capacity uh, as well as advocacy supporting the local organizations um, so that this uh, the civil society would be more sustainable, more self-sufficient, and also to think that way, to be more creative and, and to think how they could work sustainably without the international aid, because it was always uh, clear that it would not continue to be at the same level as it was way back in early 2000s. Uh, that was uh, where I was mostly focused. Uh, second, as, as a member of the Afghan government for over the past decades, uh, my focus was also to bring women's rights and women's issues uh, from the margin to the center to continue to advocate that it should not be looked at as a ethical issue only or a moral issue, a tech box that would bring nicety and uh, um, uh, symbolism uh, to the politics, but uh, why it matters tangibly and how it could have a huge impact moving forward. How does it relate to economy? How does it relate to security? How does it relate to social change? Uh, defeating 
uh, extremism and terrorism. Yeah, I think that's that a really yeah, I think that's a really important point for our audience um, that women's rights is as much as uh, advancing a country's security and stability. Um, you know, they need to be involved at all levels of the government and, and society. So that's a super important point. Um, Hila, I, I want to get your your opinion on this as well um, and your experience um, as an Afghan woman, you know, looking at the rights of women and how they've evolved over the past 20-ish years um, and how you think that it will be affected by Taliban rule now. Um, thank you, Nicole. Um, you see, um, Afghanistan before the history of Cold War and uh, also during the Cold War, the women of Afghanistan had their freedoms, they had their engagements in the government, um, they were people who were active. Um, so it's not only after 2001 that they were liberated. You must understand that um, during the civil war when the mujahideen took over in 92 when the women role was limited according to the sharia and then by the taliban from 96 onward so in 2001 uh, after the fall of the twin towers the new government was established and they came over there was almost a a renewal of um, uh, platforms for the Afghan women to re-emerge as the roles that, that they have had before. I mean, my grandmother used to work as the manager of Kabul Hotel and then later on Ariana Airlines. My mother was the director of school in the 1980s. So um, to just put it in perspective that Afghan women have always been active, have always been um, uh, very uh, right-centric, whether, and yes, there have been Muslims, but they have had uh, their share of challenges under whatever government or monarchy or regime that they have been, but they have fought and they fought hard. Unfortunately, with the current circumstances, they seem to, uh, their voices seem to be cut again, and they've been reduced to uh, a minority and second citizens. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, and I'm glad for that you got to share your experience um, with your with your mom and your grandmother. Um, and Lisa, I know that you worked um, previous role. You worked at the National Security Council. Um, I'm just curious to know your experiences um, working on the Afghan peace deal at the time. Um, you know how you've seen the rights of women evolve over the past couple of years, or what you know what your experience has been working on this issue. Well, certainly we have seen um, really tangible advances for women in Afghanistan over the last 20 years. Uh, they have more access to health care. They have more access to education. They were in the parliament, uh, young women playing sports. Uh, you know, in all respects, uh, women were healthier, more educated, more active participants in the social, political, economic life of the country. And if women's role in the economy shrinks, uh, the overall economic development of the country will suffer. Uh, so that that is an important point uh, for everyone uh, to keep top of mind. Um, and I think the way in which the Taliban has taken power does not bode well for the future of women. Uh, had there been a power sharing agreement, the Taliban were forced to share power with more moderate political leaders, I think there would have been a better chance to moderate Taliban policies. However, that's not what happened. There was no peace agreement. 
In fact, the Taliban uh, never really showed an interest in a genuine negotiated political settlement. In fact, they took a page from the insurgent playbook by participating in peace talks merely to gain international legitimacy while continuing to pursue a military path to power. And I think if we look at the violence levels, uh, they went up after the signing of the Doha Agreement, assassinations of civil society leaders, journalists, including female journalists, uh, human rights activists, actually increased after the signing of the Doha Agreement. So really there, there was never a, a genuine uh, peace process that was happening. Um, and in terms of uh, my role, um, so over the last 20 years, I have always tried to connect for people the connection between women's issues and national security. And uh, I did that in my role at the NSC as Senior Director for South and Central Asia, um, strenuously made the case for women's rights, human rights in general, to be part of any peace agreement, any peace negotiations. Um, I recall in particular a meeting in Doha with the U.S. negotiator Zahalil Zad. We were meeting with the women peace negotiators, the Afghan women peace negotiators in Doha in the fall of 2020. And the U.S. peace negotiator said, well, women's issues are the second priority for the United States. The first priority is counterterrorism. And I stepped in and I said, actually, that is not my opinion because uh, women's issues and counterterrorism are directly linked because the more repressive the Taliban is toward women, the greater resonance that has with radical ideologies and that, that permeates society. Whereas on the flip side, if women are given rights and status within society, that has a tempering effect on radical ideologies that eventually lead to terrorism. So I think, you know, I will continue to, to make this point, the issues of women and terrorism go hand in hand in Afghanistan. And the direction that women move in Afghanistan will be a major determining factor of whether the country reemerges as a terrorist safe haven. Yeah, I think that's a really important point um, that often gets misunderstood in um, negotiation talks. And women are just as part of a co the conversation as others, and their rights are intrinsically linked to national security of the of the country. So that's a really important point. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, yeah, and I wanted to ask Hila. Um, I, I saw in your in your past role you talk a lot about civil society um, safeguarding the rights of women, and I'm just wondering, you know, what has been the role of civil society to safeguard um, the rights of women? And then at this point, is there anything that civil society can do, um, or is there anything that, um, yeah, that that civil society can do? I think the civil society is already doing quite a lot. I mean, only on 28th of August, a lot of Afghan diaspora and almost 22 cities got up and, and showed their, um, you know, their solidarity against the um, uh, coming of the Taliban under the barrel of the gun. They uh, do not agree with the Taliban takeover. Uh, we, do, we asked and requested the international community not to legitimize the Taliban 
um, we did ask uh, for refugees to be accepted and the borders to be open because they're taking Afghans hostage. Um, I'm very glad that uh, Ms. Curtis is talking about how, uh, you know, during her visit in, in, in Doha, uh, Mr. Khalilzad was saying that uh, priority was counterterrorism. But uh, I'm, I'm sorry to say that the priority was not even counterterrorism. As we see, ISIS is back in, in Afghanistan. Uh, we did not, throughout the 20 years of US involvement in Afghanistan, you had the head of your intelligence, you had uh, people like Steve Cole and others write out what was the role of the Pakistan, and yet, the United States just did not want to admit and accept and deal with the sort of elephant in the room to address the main challenges of the terrorism. So let alone the issues of women rights or uh, uh, you know, civil society. I, for three years of my advocacy, when I would talk about civil society and women issues during the, the, the talks, uh, you know, there was like almost an amusing kind of a, a face as if I was I was joking, you know, that this was not uh, something that was really important. If the Afghan government was isolated during the talks, what could the civil society do? In Afghanistan, despite of all the challenges on the second day that Taliban come to Kabul, Afghans get up with a demonstration with their flag saying, we do not want you to change our identity. We do not want another flag. We do not want your our army to be dissolved and our uh, you know, military equipment go to Pakistan. Yet everybody, including Mr. Khalilzad today, tweets saying it's an issue of, of Afghans, they can resolve it amongst themselves, while Mr. Qureshi, who is the foreign minister of Pakistan, is going around talking to people how to bring peace. Do you think that peace will be acceptable for Afghans or the civil society? Not at all. So the, the sad part of this 20 years of, of um, US involvement um, in Afghanistan is the culture of inaccountability. Mr. Biden talks about, I feel zero responsibility. It goes all the way down to Afghanistan where Mr. Ghani goes and, uh, you know, passes on the buck to somebody else. And who, who pays the price? The Afghans. And this is where we are at, unfortunately. The civil society can only do as much as long as international community, you know, helps them to raise their voice. If the international community legitimizes them, what can the civil society do under the barrel of the gun? Thank you. Yeah, and I want to get um, um, ambassador, the ambassador's um, viewpoint on this as well. Um, do you agree with Hila and do you have anything to add as well? I'm sorry, I think you're muted. Yes. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, I definitely agree with uh, the points that Hila raised. Uh, particularly, I would like to pick up uh, from where she left off, and that is that uh, it's the people of Afghanistan that bear the brunt of the miseries that, whether it was during the conflict or now the aftermath of how it, it uh, is uh, evolving to a new phase. Uh, I'm not 
sure if I can say that the conflict is ending because we need to see a lot more and what that means. And also uh, war and conflict does not necessarily only mean silencing guns. It is extremely helpful to begin with, of course. Uh, but uh, there is so much more to uh, feeling safe and secure or that definition of human security. Um, just just adding uh, to what Hila was saying, um, the civil society has a very uh, important role. In fact, I, w I would say that uh, now is uh, uh, a very testing and difficult time uh, for the entire civil society because um, many people have left, the politicians left, the people left without much accountability, which is actually one of the major problems of why this happens. Uh, and not only in one country, it happens uh, in countries one after another that uh, leaders can mess up and get away with it and not be accountable uh, to uh, the people and, and to what uh, they have done, even in terms of uh, their own wrongdoings. Um, but uh, now uh, what happens to civil society really depends on what the international community uh, is willing to do, particularly in terms of keeping access to Afghanistan, with the embassies closing down, with the airports shutting down, with, the, uh, with turning a completely blind eye to Afghanistan and abandoning it once again, saying that, okay, now it's your conflict if you have one and resolve it by yourself and whoever is imposing whatever ideology on you, it's all your problem at this point. Uh, I don't think the civil society would have much room to function effectively. However, uh, I must also say that uh, the civil society is already, as Hila said, uh, uh, trying to do a lot within and outside Afghanistan. But what's important is within Afghanistan. And that is uh, because they feel the need. They are on the ground. They are the ones that are uh, best in touch with the people. And, Nobody can tell you what they need other than the people who are uh, in need. So uh, they have a very important role. And now more than ever, the civil society need the support of the international community. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, Lisa, uh, I wanted to get your perspective on this as well, working with different soci civil society groups. Um, you know, what do you think it would be the role of the really the international community with reaching out to these different civil society groups if there is appetite, if they can uh, safely interact with these groups? Uh, what what would be your be what would be the opinion um, of you? Well, I agree with um, uh, Ambassador Rikmani that it, it is very important for the international community to continue to support uh, the civil society. Um, a lot of these groups uh, have been you know, funded by the international community, a lot of the NGOs, uh, but, but not just the NGO community, just the, the civil society writ large uh, needs the support of the international community. Now, hopefully the Taliban would realize how much the civil society is contributing to making uh, Afghanistan um, a more productive, um, uh, vibrant society. Uh, but I think right now what we see is they're very nervous, they're very scared, uh, very fearful. 
you know, um, staying in their homes, not sure which way the Taliban is going to, to go with regard to their activities, what they've been doing, especially if they've been working on human rights, women's rights issues. So it's a really uncertain time for the civil society. And let's not forget, uh, you know, as I indicated in my opening remarks, that uh, the Taliban was targeting civil society leaders uh, up until they took power. Uh, just a couple weeks before the Taliban took power, they had assassinated the state media chief in Kabul. So, you know, we, we need to understand that the Taliban uh, has not been using kid, kid gloves against civil society. They've been targeting them. And uh, we need to see if, if they're changing those policies and what is going to happen, because so far the track record is, is very bad and these people I think are scared and they, they most certainly need the support of the international community, both in terms of our public statements, uh, but also in terms of our financial assistance, funding, if we can uh, figure out ways to make sure that we're supporting the civil society uh, in particular, I think that is extremely important moving forward. Yeah, that's a really good point, and that segues to my next question for you, Lisa, actually about this question of international aid. There's been a lot of conversations um, about whether suspensions should happen of international aid. I know that the IMF suspended Afghanistan's access to its resources and funding, so I'm curious to know your thoughts about, you know, your views about international aid going to Afghanistan now with the Taliban back in power. Well, I think it's very complicated. Uh, clearly, we don't want a humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan, there's been a lot of movement of people, a lot of internally displaced people that need food, need shelter. They have immediate basic needs that the international community uh, needs to support. So that, that humanitarian aid flow must continue. Um, with regard to other longer term financial assistance, you, you mentioned the IMF has suspended their program, the World Bank has suspended uh, their programming. Uh, we need to coordinate with like-minded democratic countries like the UK, EU countries, Japan, India, South Korea, who you know care about the future of women in the country, who care about the future of the civil society. Um, Russia and China will not be helpful um, on this issue. So I don't think we can count on them to coordinate closely with the United States, but the other democratic countries, yes, we, we need to be uh, coordinating now as we speak uh, how we're going to condition that assistance moving forward. And this has a real impact right now. What we're hearing is that the World Bank funding from the Afghan Reconstruction Trust Fund was going towards supporting the healthcare system. And now that that money's been suspended, uh, healthcare is, is not being provided. So this is needs immediate attention. And this is one way that the international community can have an immediate impact. They can condition that resumption of aid on women getting full access to healthcare, women and girls, um, female doctors remaining in position, continuing their work. Uh, so we could have an immediate impact um, to help women by conditioning that World Bank funding right now. Now, bilateral aid has also been suspended. 
So again, the donors are going to have to meet, they're going to have to decide how to move forward, conditioning that assistance not only on human rights, but also on the terrorism issue. Um, and it certainly will be more effective if we're coordinating our policies with other countries. That's been one criticism of the United States in the last couple of years, that it did not coordinate closely, consult closely with our European partners, both on the peace process as well as the withdrawal process. So we need to change that, and the U.S. needs to coordinate our policies toward the Taliban with the international community. Look, the privilege of international recognition by countries like the U.S. and other powerful nations is, is a big deal. And so we need to use that leverage to try to shape the way the Taliban is going to be treating women, uh, going to be treating the civil society. Um, the Taliban, uh, I think Ambassador Rahmani pointed this out, is saying all the right things. They're um, on a sort of media campaign, uh, you know, saying the right things, but we're also hearing very negative reports on the ground that women are being forced to stay home. They're not being allowed to get into the university in Herat, um, that they're being treated very brutally by Taliban fighters. So, you know, we, we need to continue to monitor what's happening and then condition that assistance on actions that the Taliban actually takes, not just words, but their actions. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it'll be really important to coordinate, as you say, and uh, condition-based aid is definitely a conversation that I've seen in the media lately. Um, Ambassador, I would like to get your opinion on this as well and just maybe ask a little bit more about what do you think in terms of um, access um, in terms of aid and, and places like Yemen obviously it's been difficult for international organizations to access different port uh, different parts of, of Yemen so I'm curious as to know what you think in terms of uh, international aid to Afghanistan and um, whether there will be access and if there isn't what the international community can do to help those still in Afghanistan Uh, thank you. Uh, the points that, that uh, Lisa just raised, I, I would like to confirm and add to that, that number one, it is very important to have uh, a more coordinated approach towards aid. Uh, second, it is uh, extremely important that uh, Moving uh, forward, like you said, that that we secure ways to reach uh, uh, Afghanistan and reach the communities that that are uh, targeted for the aid. One of the issues uh, with the uh, um, approaches over the past 20 years in particular has been lack of coordination that, that Lisa was uh, talking about. But in addition to that, it has been also uh, the focus uh, being uh, very cobble centric uh, it was too much attention to the politicians uh, and uh, how uh, they positioned themselves and a very very centralized approach in the absence of functional uh, institutions which would deliver uh, equally um, and, and distribute the aid to all the communities that contributed to what we are seeing today as a result and, and the takeover of the Taliban, grievances, corruption and much more that, that all contributed to that. 
Um, so moving forward, what is very important is uh, to really uh, adapt uh, new approaches, new strategies, reach the communities that are in need, and, and then make it conditional. Again, as Lisa was saying, it is extremely important to um, condition uh, the uh, provision of aid, and one of it uh, should be definitely relevant to what we are discussing today, the role of women. It should not be just saying that uh, you have to agree uh, that uh, uh, you will uh, respect the rights of women or you would uh, uh, allow women to access education or healthcare and whatnot, but you have to ask uh, to be able to see women in public spaces. You have to ask for uh, ensuring that there is connectivity, that there is reach, that the journalists can travel, that women can have access to the media and social media, to ensure that 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 really what you agree and what you sign up for is really happening. So uh, you are we are looking at these pictures and footages coming from Afghanistan. Uh, there are no women in any of these meetings. So when you are already subtracting half of the society and uh, pushing them inside with no certainty about their future, how is this going to make an inclusive government or community? Inclusivity has been unfortunately defined in Afghanistan in a way to ensure that everybody who has been involved one way or another in the war with the guns, that they can have a share of the pie, which is, which is again, uh, one of the reasons that we are seeing what we are seeing today. So inclusivity should definitely bring women at the center and recognizing that they are half of the society and uh, ensure and condition the provision of aid to that because other than that i'm not sure what they will be getting and then they should also uh, try to adapt strategies that they would reach to communities uh, and um, basically curbing this uh, idea of uh, getting everything in a very centralized manner yeah, I think that's really important to mention. Um, and I did notice as well on Twitter that if you look at any of the videos, you do not see women walking on the streets. You don't see them included anywhere. So that's very, uh, very sad and um, very concerning. Um, I wanted to make sure we have time for Q&A. Uh, so I'm going to just transition over to there. So the first question that I have, um, and I think that this would be a good question for Gila. Um, Gila, as Afghanistan continues to see a backsliding of freedom of speech and press, what do you think must be done to ensure that there is no cutoff in information and access? Well, there has been already a shrinking uh, space for, for civil society, for freedom of speech. Uh, I mean, uh, the word democracy doesn't exist, but I'm also wondering uh, in the past three years of the Doha agreement, how much our conditionality did work for uh, for the Taliban that now it would work. You see, even though the Doha agreement was signed, um, how much did they stick to their promises of Doha agreement that after this you can introduce conditionality and for them to respect freedom of speech or women rights or human rights or, or whatever that they talk about in terms of rights of individuals under the Sharia, which changes at every moment, uh, whoever is 
their spokesperson is. So this is this is one issue. Um, the other issue is that from a um, from a power like the United States, which is leading uh, in 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 the world, you know, and uh, democracy that uh, that it represents, with all sorts of checks and balances. In the past three years, there was no measures whatsoever to hold people who were doing the policies or making decisions on Afghanistan accountable. So now talking about women's rights, it's like it's easy for me to talk about women issues in Afghanistan being outside, but all those women who were a part of the women network or were on the ground right now are finding it difficult to survive. You know, so um, how how can I just easily sit and say, you know, if we put conditions, then you can come out and talk and do these sort of things and then everything will be rosy. It, it doesn't work like that because these people don't change. They haven't changed. They have a certain mindset and they'll continue to do that. So we if we want freedom of speech, if we want, uh, you know, some form of inclusivity of minorities, religious or ethnic, if we want women, you know, you need to ensure that um, that there is no Taliban at, at, uh, at large uh, governing, you know, they, they can't. You cannot legitimize their rule under the gun because that's what has happened before. And that if you do that again, we will have a new chapter of proxy war with ISIS on the, in the um, you know in, in the scene. There will be no such thing as women rights or freedom of speech. Journalists are already writing. They are killing everybody that's open-minded that stands for Afghanistan. So I'm afraid that I'm I'm, I'm you know drawing a very um, uh, you know a grim picture, but that's the, the the reality of the situation. That if you really your conditionality had worked, it would have worked in this three years. You must change your policy. You must hold those policymakers responsible and sit a stage at the global world, at the UN, to figure out how you're going to sort out your issues with China, with Russia, with regional countries like Pakistan, India, for us Afghans to live in peace. Thank you. Yeah, um, that is a really good point. And Ambassador, I wanted to get your perspective on what Hila just said as well. Uh, well, um, on one hand, uh, I agree with uh, what she is saying in terms of the role of the region in resolving Afghanistan's issue. It hasn't been an, a, um, a full-fledged civil war necessarily the way it has been recently portrayed. Uh, but um, on the other hand, when we are speaking on conditionality, it, uh, of course, the conditions of the Doha Agreement did not work because nothing in Doha Agreement really worked. Uh, it was uh, other other than the specific uh, timeline and deadline that was introduced and, and uh, played along with, uh, not much of that agreement and conditionality worked. When we are talking about the conditionality, it is also a question of accountability. If you do, uh, you do not introduce a condition that if you don't see women in the public sphere, you are not going to provide aid, that should pressure. If you make uh, the recognition of the government based on certain conditions that how aid and support would be channeled, that would be something. But what is important is 
to stick with it, to respect it, to observe it, and not just to overlook it. So now that that the whole issue in terms of um, the presence of troops and deadlines and all that is over, I'm uh, hoping that this would be uh, done in a more accountable way. Uh, because other than that, if you just provided aid, and it never reached the communities, if it never reached the women, if it never reached the children, if it never reached the youth. So what are you really funding? And what other lever you have anyways uh, to help? There is a huge humanitarian cr uh, crisis boiling up, and that is important for the Taliban who are uh, claiming this victory and, and they, are, uh, they want to rule the country. Uh, I hope they want to rule a country that is not starving. And for that uh, to be addressed, they would need international aid because of the shambled economy that we have. So I think this is the, the time that, that diplomacy must be put in place. And the and uh, United States, along with the regional countries, along with the, inter the rest of the international allies and partners, must take a very closer look and, and make things work more for people and communities because in the long run even if their interest is uh, as, as it is defined only a national security interest that would be met by supporting these families and addressing this, the the crisis at that level can i jump in here um, I, I think this is important look the doha agreement and i've said this several times now was an extremely weak agreement. It made very little demands of the Taliban. So there really were no conditions related to human rights or violence against Afghans. And every time uh, the Taliban assassinated a civil society member, there were no consequences. It, there, there just weren't. Uh, and so I think that uh, that is not a good example because number one, there there were hardly any conditionalities included in the Doha agreement, and there were no consequences when the Taliban resumed violence and even assassinated civil society members. In fact, there were more concessions given to the Taliban. Five thousand of their Taliban prisoners were released. Uh, and this happened in the midst of them continuing violence. So, you know, that that is a, a terrible uh, blueprint to follow. Uh, and my, when I described conditionality moving forward, it would be much, much different. And that's why I'm saying the U.S. needs to work with international partners who uh, believe in human rights and are willing to hold the Taliban accountable because I think that the way the Doha agreement was negotiated uh, was not the right way to proceed. And we're seeing that now. Uh, the U.S. neither got a genuine peace agreement out of that, nor did it get um, anything on the terrorism issue. The agreement did not require the Taliban to break ties with Al-Qaeda or expel Al-Qaeda. So when I talk about conditionality moving forward with assistance, it would be a much different framework than we saw with the Doha agreement. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, and I'm glad you brought that up. Conditionality is very important when you're moving forward. Um, I'm going to ask one more question since I know we're running out of time, um, and it's kind of combining two questions that I saw. Uh, so with the Taliban back in power, 
Uh, I wanted to get from each of you what the US and even ordinary citizens in the United States and across the world can do to help the people in Afghanistan, or even those helping to resettle in different parts of the world. The United States, I know, is taking some refugees as well. Um, and with that, uh, how do you, you know, within Afghanistan, how do you make sure that aid, um, how do you make sure that aid is um, accessing the communities it's intended to serve, um, especially holding the Taliban accountable? And I, I'll go with, uh, let me ask Ambassador uh, Rahmani this first. Um, the biggest role that international community uh, and uh, individuals, uh, as well as the government, the lawmakers, everybody in the United States could do is uh, not to abandon Afghanistan. Now that you don't really have troops on the ground, uh, you sh we should also ensure that there is one way or another access to what's happening there for your own sake and for uh, the sake of humanity as well as the partnership that you have forged for so long with us and the uh, of course the people of afghanistan this is the the, the first demand because it is very easy the to shift the focus on other crises and the world is not short of uh, different crises uh, emerging and surfacing on daily basis and then forget about it because this would be would have consequences for all of us it is not uh, resolving it it is just passing it on at a bigger scale to the next generation to the next administration and we have seen this happen in the past so the plea is here that let's not forget that there is millions of people uh, that are in afghanistan that who has counted on you who has partnered with you and let's not forget that this population which is so young which is like a majority of them uh, over 65 percent or under the age of 25 meaning they don't even remember their country with, when you were not present so they have this ties and alliance with you and this was always an opportunity of course an array of things did not go right and we are where we are but there is still opportunities for all of our sakes, for a better world, for uh, ensuring that terrorism, extremism, drugs, uh, radicalization, polarization, and all of this is not going to bubble up, uh, given the technological advancement and reaches, and for the partnership and alliance that we have made. There is still opportunities, and my request is, let's make sure that you do not abandon Afghanistan. Uh, once this dust uh, settles and there is no more media attention, then you would forget about it. And then until there would, God forbid, would be another issue. Yeah, Lisa, um, I, I'm aware of our time, but would you like to add anything as well, or Hila as well? Yeah, I think Ambassador Rahmani summed it up well. We cannot afford to abandon Afghanistan. We did that in 1990, uh, and it led to the path uh, that that led to 9/11. So, you know, even for people who supported getting U.S. troops out, um, I hope they recognize how important it is for the U.S. to remain engaged in Afghanistan, not only because of the 
counterterrorism concerns, uh, but also, you know, the moral responsibility that we have to these people. We've been partnering with the Afghans for the last 20 years. Uh, we need to welcome with open arms the Afghan refugees coming to the United States. These are people we fought side by, by side for 20 years. Uh, we would not been, have been able to make the gains against al-Qaeda that we made without the support of the Afghan security forces. And frankly, I think it was terrible when the president initially criticized the Afghan security forces and chided them, saying they weren't fighting for their country. I would like to inform him that over 60,000 Afghans died fighting for their country over the last 20 years. Um, so that's that was simply a, a ludicrous statement. And I think you know it's important you know for people to write their congressional members, tell them uh, they want to remain engaged with Afghanistan, support uh, the Afghan people, even without U.S. troops on the ground. We can continue to make a difference in the country. Yeah, I think that's really important. Well, I, yeah. Go ahead, No, I just wanted to say that in my book, uh, when I was um, analyzing the reconciliation process of Najibullah government, uh, the similarity that I see between what's happening now and at the end of his government was the fact that the Russians decided not to support it, uh, the government of, of Najibullah anymore, and actually tried to uh, bring back the Mujahideen that were close to them. In this case, it's the same thing where uh, the Americans have decided the Taliban should come and um, and somehow uh, figure out the next steps. So uh, my uh, request to, uh, to the international community is that as long as you do uh, sort of, uh, you know, support those that um, encourage radicalism or extremism. Not only your security is at risk, but the whole region's security is at risk. Second of all, please, for the Afghans who have been taken hostage, open your borders because they need to get out. They want to get out. We saw not only what's happening at the airport of Kabul, but at the, um, you know, uh, border cities of, of uh, Pakistan and, and Afghanistan, how people want to leave. It's easy to say, let's not, uh, you know, let's go ahead and support the Taliban while you, we, are, we are outside. Uh, you know, you, we cannot just say that we should just um, support them when we, we do not take um, into perspective what people are, are going through. So um, my plea to the international community is, uh, you know, people of Afghanistan should be first for you all and uh, make sure that you have your borders open because they, they are the ones who are escaping extremism, just like I and Ambassador Rahmani did. Thank you. Thank you so much, um, uh, Lisa, Ambassador, and Hila for joining us today and such a really important topic uh, that are on the minds of a lot of Americans and just really the international community in general. But uh, that concludes our program today. Um, this event will be available online in 24 hours, and you also should receive an email from our events team that will contain a short survey, and then attached is also a fact sheet that will include information on how to help with Afghan resettlement efforts in the United States, um, so I encourage you to check that all and see how you can help, and yeah, thank you all for participating today.